This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'd like for us to begin with the prayer, Anima Christi. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within your wounds, hide me. Parted from you, let me never be. From the evil foe, protect me. At the hour of my death, call me. To come to you, bid me, so that with your saints I may be, praising you forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This talk is titled, Soul of Christ, Sanctify Me. By praying to the soul of Christ present in the Eucharist, we are in communion with the source of all grace and can be more and more sanctified, transformed by Christ's Holy Spirit into the life of Christ, to the glory of God the Father. I'd like for us to think about this topic of soul of Christ sanctify me through first considering the historical background and context of the prayer known as anima Christi, soul of Christ. Then we will go to the Christological doctrine for our grace, and then consider the Eucharistic spirituality of grace before we conclude. First, historical background and context for the prayer Anima Christi. You can find all sorts of things on the web. <laughs> and if you were to Google Anima Christi and look at what people are saying about this prayer, Soul of Christ, you would find all sorts of things. You could find a website that credits its authorship to St. Ignatius of Loyola, who died in the year 1556. You could also find that it is a prayer from around the 14th century. The latter is correct. St. Ignatius of Loyola loved the prayer, and it is associated with his spiritual exercises, but it was present about two centuries before him. There's a scholar by the name of Earl Jeffrey Richards who has an essay titled The Prayer, Anima Christi and Dominican Popular Devotion in a volume titled Poverty and Devotion in Mendicant Cultures. And Richards says the prayer was in all likelihood written by the Augustinian Giles of Rome before 1315, most probably under the influence of the Feast of Corpus Christi for which Giles's teacher, Thomas Aquinas, had written the new office, or at least many parts of it. The prayer Anima Christi appears to have emerged from a specifically Thomist context, in which the thematic connection, anima, corpus, sanguinis, so soul, body, blood, was strongly emphasized. Right, so this prayer, Anima Christi, dates back most likely to a student of St. Thomas Aquinas and reflects in some ways to mystic theology. For me, uh, I grew up with this prayer. So uh, in my Catholic church, when I was going to mass, I would see the little missalette that would have prayers. And one of the prayers on the, in the back of the missalette was the Anima Christi. And I just loved it. 
All right, so, uh, so this has been a, a great uh, thing for my life. And actually, when we look at the history of it, including the, the 14th century history of it, it's really an extraordinary prayer. Pope John XXII, who was the Pope who canonized St. Thomas Aquinas, granted an indulgence to the Anima Christi in 1330. And it was translated in the 14th and 15th centuries into several vernacular languages, such as Middle High German, Middle Dutch, Middle French, and Middle English. It's hugely popular. Uh, in the 1420s, Christine de Pizan translated the Anima Christi for known, that is, prayers at the ninth hour, 3, p 3 p.m. Now, several variations of the prayer exist. One such variation is found in the 1939 Dominican Missal. And I'm giving you an English translation of this form of Anima Christi. Most holy soul of Christ, sanctify me. Most sacred body of Christ, save me. Most precious blood of Christ, inebriate me. Most pure water from the side of Christ, wash me. Most powerful sweat of the face of Christ, heal me. Most tender passion of Christ, comfort me. O good Jesus, guard me. Within your wounds, hide me. From you to be separated, do not permit me. From the evil enemy, defend me. In the hour of death, call me. To come to you, bid me, and next to you, place me, so that with your angels and archangels I may praise you through the endless ages of ages. Amen. All right, so the Anima Christi is particularly associated with the Mass. Right? In the Missal, this would be, uh, it's called another prayer. So in terms of extra prayers that can be prayed in association with the Mass. The current Enchiridion of indulgences continues the papal tradition of granting an indulgence, and this indulgence is partial, to the recitation of the Anima Christi. Some people like to pray the Anima Christi after receiving Holy Communion. Now, that first line, again, is, Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Now, I want us to meditate on, on particularly this line and then to think about the other lines. Okay, Soul of Christ, sanctify me. The entire prayer is addressed to the man Jesus. He who is eternal God, the eternal Son of the Father, became true man in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and he became our bread of life. He wants us to know that he is with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And so he took upon himself a human body and soul to suffer for us. So particularly in terms of thinking about being in the presence of the Most Holy Eucharist, or of receiving the Holy Eucharist, that we can speak directly to Christ's soul. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Some people today use the term soulmate, okay? And sometimes people will snicker and, and think about uh, soulmate as, well, it's kind of, uh, kind of a, a jargon that people associate with things that maybe they aren't that interested in. Well, in a really true sense, it is very traditional to talk about Jesus as our soulmate, right? He is the bridegroom of the soul, the bridegroom. Right? So in terms of, say, uh, 
the tradition of interpreting the Song of Songs, Origen talks about how the bride and the Song of Songs can represent either the individual soul or the church. All right, so, you know, have you ever wanted a soulmate? You have the perfect soulmate, Jesus. All right, and this is where in terms of, uh, for those of you who are especially called to marriage, no matter how wonderful your spouse will be, your spouse is not Jesus, okay? And then to be able to think, you know, that we, uh, we say that uh, until death do us part, okay? So that uh, what God has joined together, man must not separate, right? So uh, I once saw a poster uh, that said, marriage is forever, and it was by some sort of Catholic diocese. And I looked at it and I was like, no. <laughs> no, uh, not really. Okay. Uh, why? Because marriage is until death. Okay, Th that's really powerful. But I want to make sure that we understand that forever, in the true sense, is after death. Okay, forever and ever and ever, until the endless ages of ages. Jesus is the bridegroom of the church, and he wants to be so united with us that he gives us his own body, blood, soul, and divinity. Everything that he has, everything that he is. Okay, marriage is a sort of a partnership of the whole of life. The Code of Canon Law for the Latin Church talks about marriage as being the partnership of the whole of life. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Contra Gentiles talks about marriage as a certain greatest friendship or maximum friendship, okay? It's just wonderful. Marriage is absolutely wonderful, okay? Jesus, as the bridegroom of the church, as our soulmate, wants to be with us forever and ever and ever in this covenant that will raise us up on the last day. All right, because the Eucharist, as St. Ignatius of Antioch teaches, and St. Ignatius of Antioch was martyred by the year 117. The Eucharist is the medicine of immortality, okay? The medicine of immortality that the divine physician gives. And so then to be able to think about how in the Eucharist, the bridegroom of the church comes, okay? Okay, we're called to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we can pray, soul of Christ, sanctify me. You know, we can think about the body of Christ. You know, that, we're, that, that we are saved by the body of Christ. You know, you, you know, isn't it wonderful to find someone who will lay down his life for you? You know, who, that, that you just know, yeah, he would take a bullet for me. There are some people who find that special, you know, that, that, or someone, or that you know someone that holy who would be a martyr, who would be, a, um, who would just, who would, who would, who would take it for you. Okay? No one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends, Jesus says on the night before he died. He's the one who lays down his life for us. Okay? That, that he lays down his life. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. 
St. Paul teaches in the letter to the Romans. Right? So, so this is where in terms of body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Okay? We think of inebriation in terms of alcohol. Okay? So, so you think about wine inebriates. Right? That the blood of Christ can take us out of our normal way of thinking and rather than making us, uh, in terms of delirious uh, in a worldly sense, can give us that lift into thinking about things from God's point of view. You know, that, that, his, that Christ's blood inebriates us. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Do you ever feel dirty? Okay, the water from the side of Christ. You know, that, that the... Uh, that after Jesus died, a soldier pierced his side, and from that side, blood and water flowed. You know, that, that especially the sacramental life is given to us from the side of Christ. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. You know, this prayer is for those who suffer. If you don't suffer, if you really don't suffer during this life on earth, uh, I, first of all, I don't know what kind of life you're having. Um, you know, but prayer, prayer is uh, especially for those who need mercy, who um, who need to be strengthened. Jesus comes to save us by suffering with us and for us. Right, and that is just so important. You know, that, that in terms of the Eucharistic presence of our Lord, that we think about the sacrifice of the cross. It's the one sacrifice made present for us in the Most Holy Eucharist. You know, so his passion, his suffering for us to be strengthened in the midst of our sufferings. Do you ever feel that you're not heard? Oh, good Jesus, hear me. Hear me. Within your wounds, hide me. I have wounds. I want to take shelter in your wounds, Lord. I know you open your side wide for me. I want to be there. Imparted from you, let me never be. From the evil foe, protect me. At the hour of my death, call me. Right? We're all going to die. Jesus is the one who suffered and died for us, the just man, for us who were unjust. So that way we may rise with him in the glory of heaven. You know, at the hour of my death, call me to come to you, bid me, so that with your saints I may be praising you forever and ever. Amen. Praying the Anima Christi, especially in terms of receiving the Holy Eucharist, can help us really think about who Jesus is and how he wants to be in us, and that he wants us to be in him. Now, the second part, Christological doctrine for our grace. Again, the prayer addresses aspects of Christ's humanity. He is the eternal Son of God who was made flesh for our salvation. He is one divine person who by the incarnation has two natures, divine and human. 
against the heresy of docetism, which is a heresy that says Christ only seemed human, and Apollinarianism, a heresy that says that Jesus did not have a rational soul, we can affirm the full humanity of Jesus Christ. St. Gregory of Nazianzus says in his Epistle 101 to Clodonius, what has not been assumed has not been healed, but what is united to God is even being saved. That Jesus wanted to save us to be like us. He is like us in all things but sin. All right, so then in terms of his grace, you know, that, that his grace um, uh, comes to us. The letter to the Colossians says about Christ in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, St. Augustine maps this out in terms of divinity and humanity. Wisdom about divinity, knowledge in terms of humanity, and that in Christ, who is both God and man, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. St. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. Yet I live no longer I, but Christ lives in me. Insofar as I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who has loved me and given himself up for me. Christ, because of his extraordinary knowledge, when he was dying, knew you and me. Right? St. Paul wasn't one of the disciples who was traveling with our Lord as he was making his way to Jerusalem. But St. Paul knew that the Son of God loved him and gave himself up for him. All right, so we can just think about the mystery of, again, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures. St. Thomas Aquinas uh, has this understanding that flows from uh, the New Testament depictions of, of our Lord Jesus. So in terms of Jesus as head of the church, well, that, that he, uh, in his soul, provides the grace for the rest of the body. So that the head really uh, uh, is tops and that, uh, that suffuses all of the body with the life of the head. Right? You can think of also about John's account of the night before Jesus died, uh, John chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. You know, when you, when you look at um, a vine with its various branches, you can just say, well, it's all vine. I mean, it's, it's all vine. Yes. Right? Because the branches are there expressing the vine. Right? And so uh, we as branches have no life in grace other than what comes to us through the vine, Jesus. Um, on John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. St. Thomas Aquinas writes, These words can be explained in relation to his dignity as head. That is, inasmuch as Christ is the head of the church. In this way, it is his prerogative to communicate grace to others, both by producing virtue in the minds of men through the inpouring of grace, and by meriting, through his teaching and works and the sufferings of his death, superabundant grace for an infinite number of worlds, if there were such. An infinite number of worlds, 
if there were such. Various people speculate, are, are, are there worlds where there are rational creatures out there in this big universe? St. Thomas says, whatever there's out there, we know in him that there is this super abundant grace, okay? So in terms of full of grace and truth, that can save the whole universe, all right? Any grace in our souls is a share in Christ's own grace. Any grace in our souls is a share in Christ's own grace. So when the word is sent, he sent as the word breathing forth love. Okay, the word is sent breathing forth love. And so in the incarnation, the word is made flesh and he breathes forth love, his Holy Spirit, who anoints his humanity. And so that following upon the grace of the hypostatic union, that the eternal Son of God, in his hypostasis or person, was made flesh, the Holy Spirit is right there, sanctifying Christ's own soul, so that in God enfleshed, you have not only the Son, in that presence, that hypostatic presence. But he is never without his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then is sanctifying Jesus's soul. So that way his soul then is that source that is particularly opened up for us in the passion of the cross. So that way in terms of the divine mercy streams out to us now that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who lives forever to make intercession for us in heaven, that one is wanting to stream forth, wanting to shower down, wanting to pour out the gift of the Holy Spirit, so that way we may be more and more sanctified, filled with his grace, and to be more and more truly branches on the one who is the vine, members for the one who is the head. We then can not only be Christian, but be Christ, as St. Augustine says. The word Christ, Christos, means anointed one, okay, the Messiah, the anointed one. And as Christians, then, we belong to him. We are anointed with his, with his own Holy Spirit, that we are in his body. It is a true communion in the most radical sense. Now, I want us to focus on, on the Eucharistic spirituality of grace. I begin with the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1374. The mode of Christ's presence under the Eucharistic species is unique. It raises the Eucharist above all the sacraments as the perfection of the spiritual life and the end to which all the sacraments tend. In the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ, is truly, really, and substantially contained. This presence is called real, by which it is not intended to exclude the other types of presence, as if they could not be real too, but because it is presence in the fullest sense. That is to say, it is a substantial presence by which Christ, God and man, makes himself wholly and entirely present. Okay? So recall how this morning I talked about three modes of God's presence. So in terms of nature, grace, and that hypostatic union, the Eucharist is Christ present. Okay, so that highest 
mode of the divine presence is there because it is Jesus himself. This real presence describes what St. Thomas calls the reality in the sacrament, res et sacramentum. Now, St. Thomas in his sacramental theology also will use simply this term res, okay, the reality or the effect of the Eucharist, which is the grace of our unity in Christ. We come together because we are found in him and he's found in us. Right? right now we're experiencing the Eucharistic revival in the United States, that the U.S. bishops are leading this church so that way we may have a new movement of the Holy Spirit in our land and in our hearts. Okay. And then uh, people uh, in different ways are focusing uh, on the mystery of the Most Holy Eucharist. Different polls have been taken about what Catholics think the Eucharist is, okay? And some of the polls are very depressing in terms of the numbers. I want us not only to consider the reality of Christ's bodily presence, that he is present in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity, not only that, but why? Why is he there? It's for this reality that we may be taken up into him. All right? And that's the life of grace. Okay, Jesus uh, in the Most Holy Eucharist allows us to adore him and to receive him so that way we may be transformed by him and so finally attain to the glory of heaven. Okay, that the Eucharist then is the pledge of future glory. So St. Thomas asks in question 79 of the Tertia Pars about the effects of the Eucharist. And in 79, Article 1, whether grace is bestowed through the sacrament. I want us to go through that corpus, the body of the argument, and replies to the objections. St. Thomas says, the effect of the sacrament ought to be considered, first of all, and principally from what is contained in the sacrament, which is Christ, who just as by coming into the world, he visibly bestowed the life of grace upon the world, according to John 1, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So also by coming sacramentally into man causes the life of grace, according to John 6, he that eats me, the same also shall live by me. Hence, St. Cyril of Alexandria says on Luke 12, God's life-giving word, by uniting himself with his own flesh, made it to be productive of life. For it was becoming that he should be united somehow with bodies through his sacred flesh and precious blood, which we receive in life-giving blessing in the bread and wine. Secondly, it is considered on the part of what is represented by the sacrament, which is Christ's passion, as stated above. And therefore, the sacrament works in man the effect which Christ's passion wrought in the world. Hence, St. John Chrysostom says in the words, immediately there came out blood and water, John 19. Since the sacred mysteries derive their origin from thence, when you draw close to the awe-inspiring chalice, so approach as if you were going to drink from Christ's own side. Hence, our Lord himself says, this is my blood, which shall be shed for many unto the remission of sins. Third, the effect of the sacrament is considered from the way in which the sacrament is given, for it is given by way of food and drink. And therefore the sacrament does for the spiritual life all that material food does for the bodily life, namely by sustaining, giving increase, restoring, and giving delight. Accordingly, St. Ambrose of Milan says, This is the bread of everlasting life, which supports the substance of our soul. And St. John Chrysostom says, when we desire it, he lets us feel him and eat him and embrace him. And hence our Lord says, my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. 
Fourth, the effect of the sacrament is considered from the species under which it is given, so the appearance. Hence, Augustine says, Our Lord betokened his body and blood and things which out of many units are made into some one whole. For out of many grains is one thing made, namely bread, and many grapes flow into one thing, namely wine. And therefore, he observes elsewhere, O sacrament of piety, O sign of unity, O bond of charity. And since Christ and his passion are the cause of grace, and since spiritual refreshment and charity cannot be without grace, it is clear from all that has been set forth that this sacrament bestows grace. Okay, so St. Thomas wants us to be able to see in terms of our retreat on grace, go to the Eucharist. Okay, the Eucharist is most powerfully giving us grace. St. Thomas says in the first objection, this sacrament has of itself the power of bestowing grace, nor does anyone possess grace before receiving the sacrament except from some desire thereof, from his own desire, as in the case of the adult, or from the church's desire in the case of children. Hence, it is due to the efficacy of this power that even from desire thereof a man procures grace, whereby he's enabled to lead the spiritual life. Right. So this is where, in terms of um, at the Easter vigil, Okay, at the Easter Vigil, it's common for a Catholic church to see adults baptized and confirmed. Okay, people are baptized and confirmed, most especially to receive the Eucharist, the sacrament that occurs at every Mass. Right, that is really the fullness of the uh, of the initiation, is when. People receive the Eucharist. All the sacraments in different ways are ordered to the Eucharist because the Eucharist is that sacrament of sacraments, to use an expression from Dionysius, the Areopagite. Okay, the sacrament of sacraments. And, and so all the sacraments tend to that Eucharist. Okay, so even baptism, that you have the, you know, the, the first baptism, you know, even when a baby is baptized, the baby is ordered to the Eucharist. This sacrament confers grace spiritually together with the virtue of charity. Hence, St. John Damascene compares the sacrament to the burning coal which Isaiah saw. Okay? For a live ember is not simply wood, but wood united to fire. So also the bread of communion is not simple bread, but bread united with the Godhead. Okay, so you remember that Isaiah is touched. The prophet is touched in his coal. And that burning coal represents eucharistically uh, that that burning uh, charity that's uh, at work in the Eucharist. As Gregor observes in a homily for Pentecost, God's love is never idle. For wherever it is, it does great works. God's love is never idle. God, uh, God's love is always at work. And consequently, through the sacrament, as far as it's concerned, not only is the the habit, the habitus of grace and of virtue bestowed, but is furthermore aroused to act. According to 2 Corinthians 5, the charity of Christ presses us on. Hence, it is that the soul is spiritually nourished through the power of the sacrament by being spiritually gladdened and, as it were, inebriated with the sweetness of the divine goodness, according to Song of Songs 5. Eat, O friends, and drink and be inebriated, my dearly beloved. And then the last reply to the objection, uh, objection, St. Thomas says, because the sacraments operate according to the similitude by which they signify, thereby, therefore, by way of assimilation, it is said that in this sacrament, the body is offered for the salvation of the body and the blood for the salvation of the soul, although each works for the salvation of both, 
since the entire Christ is under each. Now, though the body is not the immediate subject of grace, still the effect of grace flows into the body while in the present life we present our members as instruments of justice unto God. And in the life to come, our body will share in the incorruption and the glory of the soul. Too often, people discount their body. Our body is meant for the risen glory of heaven. That, uh, that we are meant to rise again on the last day. You know, that from dust to dust, you know, that, that this body will disintegrate. But God's power is greater than the physics of disintegration. And God wants us to be body and soul in radiant glory. And the Eucharist, okay, that hidden presence of Christ, is meant not just for our own soul, but for our body. Even now, when we receive the Eucharist, there can be bodily effects that help us unto salvation. And then finally, you know, as St. Irenaeus teaches in his Against Heresies, that the Eucharist then will allow us to be raised with the risen Lord. In my earlier talk today, I quoted from the two first verses of St. Thomas Aquinas' Adorote. I'd like now to quote the last two, precisely as we're thinking about soul of Christ sanctify me. Like what tender tales tell of the pelican, bathe me, Jesus, Lord, in what thy bosom ran, blood that but one drop, blood that what but one drop of has the power to win all the world forgiveness of its world of sin. Jesus, whom I look at, shrouded here below, I beseech thee, send me what I thirst for so, some day to gaze on thee face to face in light, and be blessed forever with thy glory's sight. So, just in conclusion, the grace of our salvation is the grace of being present to Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary as God with us. He makes us wet with blood sanctifying us by the power of the cross and preparing us to sing Alleluia in the glory of heaven. Thank you. Okay, so we have some time for questions and answers and discussion. So, yep. Okay, so this is going back to, to the very creation of the human being. Yes, all right. So the question then, why did, uh, why were we given bodies? Well, it goes back to who we are and how we're different from angels. Angels are pure spirits. They have nothing material or bodily in them, and they were created in a special way for the glory of God who is completely immaterial. Okay, there are many, many angels. St. Thomas is called the angelic doctor, and he loves to discuss angels. Okay, so all sorts of details about angels. Uh, the human being is not an angel. Okay, when someone dies, he or she doesn't become an angel. Okay? 
Uh, <laughs> all right, people have different expressions, all right? Uh, and you could say, oh, yeah, she's my angel. Okay, well, uh, yes, it's a, a lovely expression where she, she's, she's bringing me good news or she's helping me in some way. Uh, uh, but really, we're body and soul. St. Thomas Aquinas famously comments on 1 Corinthians 15, where St. Paul meditates uh, and teaches about the resurrection of the body. And St. Thomas says, the soul is not I. Uh, so from the very beginning, in terms of God's intention and in creation, he wanted not only the invisible spirits and all this visible matter of the universe, he didn't want just the invisible spirits and all this visible matter, uh, visible matter of the universe. He wanted a creature that would unite, in a sense, heaven and earth. That the human being precisely has something very material, the body, okay? There's a purpose why we have brains, okay? You know, the, uh, a heart, you, uh, you know, why we have hands. We, um, and an immaterial soul. Right, so this is the uniqueness of being human. The angels don't have our experience of time. Right, so angels have a state that's sometimes called of eternity. Okay, so they, they began, uh, but they continue, and they and they can't change their minds. You know, uh, you know, some people change their minds uh, five times before getting out of bed. I mean, um, so uh, so whether that's good or bad. Okay, conversion is a change of mind. Metanoia. Uh, we can't. Angels can't. Okay? They, they were given one choice. That choice was made. We live in this life that is both, that, because, both bodily and spiritual, uniting things that cannot be seen, the immaterial with the material. And Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took to himself a body united to a rational soul, okay? In other words, a complete human nature for us and for our salvation. The question is, in terms of St. Thomas's teaching on the Eucharist, because he has this language of delighting in the Eucharist, and he compares this particularly with common food, okay? So in terms of, of thinking about uh, uh, the third reason that he gives, the effect of the sacrament is considered from the way in which the sacrament is given, for it is given by way of food and drink. And therefore the sacrament does for the spiritual life all that material food does for the bodily life, namely by sustaining, giving increase, restoring, and giving delight. Okay, let's, let's get natural for a moment. Um, okay, so St. Thomas loves these uh, appeals to, the na to nature. Do you have favorite foods? I do. Do you have a favorite drink? I do. Um, <laughs> These things delight me. Okay, I just love them. <laughs> okay, so I do. Okay, uh, so uh, if you say, uh, I don't really care about any particular food or I really don't care about any particular drink, you're not going to get St. Thomas's analogy. If you think, oh yeah, you know, a good Italian sausage pizza, uh, with, with, uh, yeah, and then, you know, um, you know, something even better to drink with it. Uh, <laughs> you think, okay, I, I'm over that. I, I'm all, I'm, I, I'm there. Okay, yes, okay. Uh, that'll put a smile on my face. All right, so um, 
what St. Thomas wants us to do is to think there, is a, there are multiple reasons why Jesus gave himself as food and drink. And a part of it is just the, the sign value. Okay, so Catholics who, uh, uh, who believe that in the Eucharist, it is Jesus himself. The substance of the Eucharist is Jesus himself, that substance, and no longer, by the way, bread or wine. But he retains the accidents and the sign value of bread and wine. And one of the reasons is that people are delighted by this, all right? So, uh, so this is where, in terms of perhaps uh, for some, wine is more delightful than bread. I grew up uh, raising wheat on a Kansas farm. So I have a special, in terms of, uh, we'd have the, the wheat harvest and, uh, you know, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, Kansas uh, uh, breadbasket of the world. Okay, so that's what we say, uh, what some say. Uh, so this is where, in terms of thinking about the Eucharist, that the Eucharist, in, in the Eucharist, Jesus took bread and wine, things of food and drink, that would be delightful, okay? That would be sustaining, you know, cause increase. Um, and then to help us think about how we are to have a, a spiritual increase of grace. Right now, the question it comes about then, all right, but didn't we just talk about the hiddenness of Christ and that it's not necessary to have certain feelings? It's not necessary, but you know, it's not bad to have um, even a bodily reaction to the Eucharist. Uh, this is where I can remember, uh, I can remember when I was a novice brother and a parishioner sending the community a note uh, uh, and, the, and the family suffered a terrible tragedy. And, uh, and, and this parishioner wanted the, the community to know about the terrible tragedy and then uh, about the importance of the Eucharist for his family. And then how he had a particular feeling when he received the Eucharist. And it made, and it made an impression on me because in terms of one of the things, you know, if you don't want to be sorrowful in life, don't love, okay? If you don't want to have any sort of sorrow, just don't love. If you um, uh, are brave enough to open yourself up to terrible sorrow, love intensely. Okay, because, because we live in the Valley of Tears. Um, the Eucharist, again, is in terms of that power of the passion of Christ. And some people then, in terms of receiving the Eucharist, um, open themselves up to particular types of sorrow because of the love at work in their lives, God's love at work in their lives. You know, sometimes people are moved in terms of a joy, sometimes both joy and sorrow in different ways. Um, right? So it's not necessary for us to have um, uh, certain spiritual or bodily reactions to the presence of, of Christ and that, in, that, that giving us grace in the Eucharist. But actually, uh, it's not bad. And various people are moved, okay? People are drawn to Christ's presence in the Eucharist, to adore him, to adore him in silence, okay? And this is where, like, sometimes people feel, they, they actually kind of feel more settled or more put in order, so to speak, because there's such a jostling out in the world that there's this peace, a silent peace, 
That's what some people experience. And it's beautiful. What I want to affirm is that uh, it doesn't necessarily have to happen in order for there to be grace at work. Grace uh, can work in different ways uh, uh, for people. And then remember St. Therese? You know, she, she was telling her mother, uh, superior, and us that, uh, that she has this terrible dryness. Okay, dryness. And she says, you know, a lot of people don't let Jesus sleep. I let him sleep in my boat. I don't disturb him. I sometimes sleep too. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I sometimes sleep when I'm supposed to be meditating. You know, God, still, God pours uh, gifts on his beloved while they slumber. All right, so this is where, in terms of acts of faith, and to be able to distinguish, you know, because we're complex creatures, body and soul, to be able to distinguish that. Thank you. Yep. Great. So the question is, how about receiving the gift of grace, and then that question of acting freely, free will? St. Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. So don't go back to sin, okay? So this is where, in terms of grace, grace frees us to be who we are meant to be. Uh, when we are sin, we are, when we are trapped in sin, we actually, uh, uh, we are, uh, we are slaves and we uh, are caught. Uh, people can use different descriptions of this. But the grace that God gives, you know, say the grace of the sacraments, is to free us. And then to be able to take this more seriously. Okay, so you know, being free is a wonderful thing. And sometimes people will treat the freedom of grace in a way that just makes it like another to-do list. Okay? And it's sad when some people will treat this in terms of their whole life as being caught. Okay? Um, we have the freedom of the children of God. Freedom of the children of God. St. Augustine, when he preaches on the first letter of John, says, love and do what you want. Love and do what you want. And if you understand St. Augustine's meaning of love, which is to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, okay, then if you really do that, do whatever you want. All right, so this is where, in terms of how we're meant to have the mind of Christ, if we really love, if we really have that theological virtue of charity, as opposed to, um, well, I mean, frankly, some people will talk about uh, uh uh, sexual sin as types of love. Okay, well, it's types of love. Okay, but that's not what St. Augustine means by love and do what you want. Uh, if we have that theological virtue of charity, Romans 5 5, the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. If we have that at work, you know, and we receive the Eucharist, then have the freedom to do what you want. Yeah. Um, uh, but sometimes people can be caught and just treat this as anything else. Uh, no, God, God really wants us to be stupefyingly free. Great. Thank you. The question is, 
is grace really a kind of knowledge? Okay, so there are different ways of speaking about grace in terms of healing, uh, uh, but is it fundamentally knowledge? And I would say knowledge is a kind, but is not a full answer to grace. Why? The smartest person is not necessarily the holiest one. St. Bernadette didn't know her catechism well. Okay, she, she didn't, not, we're not talking about, say, astrophysics, okay? The catechism. St. Bernadette said that she really didn't know the catechism well. She, she didn't have a lot of knowledge of, of, of faith. And if you're, going to, if you're going to have a quiz bowl situation of the, of the catechism. Okay, so she might not have done well with that. So, but I do want to say it's a part of it. And this is where, in terms of the grace of revelation, that there is content. Dr. Idle talked about the articles of faith, okay? So that there's a reason why in the Sunday Mass and Massive Solemnities, you know, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, that we go through the Nicene Cosmopolitan Creed, that we want to profess our faith. And this is a particular kind of knowledge, so that that there is something about grace that gives us um, access to real knowledge. And the eternal Son of God is the Word of God, okay? He's the wisdom of God. And so in different ways in the spiritual life that we are called to put on the mind of Christ and to be able to think new things and to think new in new ways, to be able to have the God's eye view on all of reality. And then, of course, heaven is a beatific vision, a wondrous knowledge. Okay? But I don't want to say it's the totality, because again, the smartest person need not be the holiest person. And when you think about the theological virtues, so faith, hope, and charity, that charity presupposes that knowledge of faith. You know, St. Augustine asks in the De Trinitate, how can you love that which you do not know? How can you love that which you do not know? So this is where, in terms of, because you also talked about um, that desire or that, uh, that, that in grace, okay, so the love of God has been poured into our hearts of the Holy Spirit given to us. St. Thomas understands that love of God to be God pouring into us our love uh, for him because he has first loved us. That we then are opened in the life of grace to God's love for us, so that we can be beloved in grace, you know, that we are truly pleasing, and then that we can respond by loving the Lord our God. Okay? Loving Him with our mind, you know, our highest part of the soul, but also in terms of our our, our body, everything that we have, everything that we are. So I want to affirm how knowledge is, is really up there. It's high. But I want to say it's more. Okay, do we have time for one more? Uh, yeah, one more. One more. Maybe, two. Maybe two. Okay, we'll see. Father Jonah will tell us. All right, so within your wounds, hide me. Um, First off, uh, do you ever get frightened? Do you ever want to go into a shelter 
do you ever think oh that's scary i uh, i i want to disappear the world has all sorts of scary evil things and what christ offers us is to be hidden with him saint paul says in the letter to colossians our lives are hidden with christ in god there's a hiddenness and then in terms of just thinking about this visually again consider christ crucified and his side being pierced uh, sometimes uh, mystics will talk about uh, the dove who uh, is at the cleft of the rock okay so that the that the bird then can take shelter in terms of some storm that okay that we can take shelter precisely in the side of christ within your wounds hide me and notice then uh, again it's because we have wounds and we can be further wounded that we are protected you know the, uh, i love you lord you are my strength you know that that the lord is our shelter our rock uh, our, our fortress our stronghold that we can get inside of him and so in the eucharist it's not just simply that that christ goes inside of us but we go inside of him and that uh, as saint augustine heard in book seven of the confessions it is not you who will change me into yourself um, but you will be changed into me saint augustine hears you know with food you know food makes more of me but with the food, the bread of life, we um, we enter more and more into Him. Great. All right. So thanks. The question is, what about proper reverence for the Eucharist, particularly during this time of the Eucharistic revival? I would say follow what your local bishop is saying in terms of how the bishop has special responsibility for the sacred liturgy in his diocese. Okay. So in terms of that the bishop has this special responsibility in leading the worship of his diocese, okay? Um, and this is where also in terms of the Catholic Church, the worldwide Catholic Church, you, know, you have the, uh, the Roman Missal, the general instruction for the Roman Missal, all these things, um, uh, or the US bishops in terms of various adaptations that have been approved uh, by Rome, uh, that we do what the church officially says, okay? Yeah, okay. Uh, if there are liturgical abuses, then to be able to uh, to address that in a proper way. Okay. So in terms of you know if, if something wrong happens, you know you, you can uh, you can tell someone you know and uh, if the person has greater authority than you, you could do it in a gentle manner, but you could still say something. Okay. Um, and this is where in terms of all, uh, you can't control other people's lives. It's difficult enough to control your own life um, uh, but then in terms of just thinking about how do I during this moment of grace want to show reverence to the Eucharist Christ's presence right so um, and people then can have different ways of doing this right I I urge uh, at mass you know again to do what the bishop says which means basically people generally do the same thing unless there is some physical need okay sometimes people can't kneel uh, sometimes people can't stand up, all right, well, you know, that, that's fine. And 
and and so uh, don't do something that would be a cause of admiratio, okay, in terms of bewilderment. Uh, who, uh, what, what, you know, like if you're doing something that would draw uh, terrible attention actually away from the Eucharist or away from the Eucharistic worship of the, of the community to I'm special, okay? So I will do uh, triple genuflection uh, uh, and clap my hands five times uh, uh, and do a somersault, okay? Uh, yeah, so that, that'd be much, okay? But, uh, but it is interesting in terms of local customs. Uh, I lived in Africa for a couple of years, and there are some, uh, uh, there are some people, uh, and it's very subtle, only the one who would give Holy Communion would really know this, but be, when they come to communion, they go, <laughs> because that's the sign in the culture for receiving a gift. Uh, when I saw this, I thought, chop, chop, hurry up. <laughs> But that's actually the sign. That's a sign of, of wonderful reverence as thanksgiving for a gift that's received. Okay, sometimes people will be adamant about receiving only on the tongue. Okay, um, the church may say that, and at different times the church has said that in different places. But I also know from lots of reading of history that at different times uh, the uh, the Eucharist uh, was given in the hand. Okay, so. This is where in terms of that there are different customs and we are body and soul. We try to do what the church says um, in terms of the mass. Then outside of mass, and to be able to think, okay, I wanna make visits to the Blessed Sacrament. Some of my favorite prayer times when I was growing up, okay, so uh, was when on Saturdays, my mom would take me to the library in town and we would make a quick visit in the, uh, to the church, okay? It, we'd go into the back pew maybe about the space of a Hail Mary or something. Not, not, not much of, uh, not a long prayer time, but I just loved making a visit uh, and uh, praying a quick prayer, okay? Well then, to be able to see how, you know, can you go into the church and pray? You know, can you go into a, a perpetual adoration chapel and have your regular time? You know, can you, and then to be able to think about, you know, your genuflection, you know, what do you pray? You know, what do you pray when you when you kneel down? Uh, you know, what 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 kind of dispose what kind of disposition of love do you want to show the Lord? Okay, so these are sorts of things, and then to be able to to consider, oh, you know, I've been taking this for granted. I really want to say every time I kneel down, I love you, Lord. You know, you and do and and. And be free in the spirit. Be free in the spirit to show your love. You know, all right, so we pray glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.